I'm Pastor Stan. I'm the discipleship pastor here. We are in the process of looking for a new lead pastor and ask that you uh, continue to pray for that. The committee is interviewing and uh, has been talking with uh, candidates and checking references and all those kinds of things. So uh, just be in prayer for them. Um, I want to let you know, too, that starting next week, Kelvin Gardner will be here. Uh, he's come through Hong Kong uh, every year for the last few years. Kelvin Gardner is a retired pastor, district superintendent, leader in the Christian Missionary Alliance in America. He will be preaching here for five Sundays in July. Now, actually, Mary Ann and I will be here next week. Uh, you, for some of you have heard, we're going to uh, America for the month of July. Uh, we actually leave on the 2nd. So we'll be here for Sunday, and uh, we'll join you for that. And, and I look forward to hearing about the ministry that Kelvin has as he's speaking here. Now, another thing that's happening is school is almost over for the year. Can I get any cheers from anyone on that? Is it happening? Unless you're going to the Australian school, they're not getting out just yet because they're used to the down-under schedule. I realized somehow this message fits in with school, and with teachers, with graduation, and uh, so we'll see how this fits in. But I want you to think back to a time when you were in school. We're in school, are in school. I want you to think about somebody who was your favorite teacher. What made this person your favorite teacher? Was it the subject? Something that just energized you? How many of you, King will want me to ask this question, how many of you like the math teacher? I heard some groans, I heard some excitement. What is it that makes a great teacher? Is it because they showed a genuine concern for the class? They cared about the class? Was it because they could motivate you to do things that you never thought possible? take you on to new levels that you've never heard of before? Could it be that they understood their subject in a way that other teachers just didn't seem to understand their subject? Are you thinking about some of these teachers? Are you thinking about some of the teachers that you've had? For some of you, that's ancient history, right? Yes, okay. I tell people... I like to tell people that history was my favorite subject. And they look at me a little funny, and I simply say, there wasn't as much to learn back then. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to look a little bit about uh, going to school with the disciples. What was it like going to school with the disciples? We've been following this series where we've been looking at the life of Christ and how He's been ministering, what He's doing, how he's been working, and a lot of that is to train up the next level of leadership that's going to take over, because Jesus knows he's only here for three years. School only lasts for three years, and the 
passage of Scripture that we're going to look at, he's halfway through. And so I wonder what it was like going to school with the disciples. Let's look at the Scripture for today. This passage, we're going to only read a few verses here, and I'm going to refer to others. So you may want to have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 9, be able to get to Matthew chapter 10, and be able to scroll back and scroll forward, because I'm going to refer to a few things. But let's look here at Matthew chapter 9, verses thir- starting at verse 35, and we go into the first verse of chapter 10. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to them and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So what's going on here? First of all, I see this as a transition point with what Jesus is doing with his disciples. This is oftentimes a passage of Scripture that's pulled out when we have a worker shortage. And this passage of Scripture was scheduled months ago. But I don't see the main emphasis here being a worker shortage. I see this as a time when Jesus is transitioning his disciples from where they were in their lessons to the next phase that's coming up. Matthew, I believe, puts this in here for that transition. And we'll look at where they're going, as well as where they came from. But first of all, we want to look at what kind of teacher was Jesus. Because I think Matthew summarizes the ministry that Jesus had for teachers. And I think these are the things that made the teacher that you felt close to made that person a good teacher. But look at verse 35. We find that Jesus went through all the towns and villages. He had a concern for all the people. He wasn't concerned for just one group. He went to all the people. We know that He passed through Samaria, a place that the Jewish teachers oftentimes did not go. But we find Jesus out there with the people and a real heart of concern. I believe that as he got to know the people, he learned, he, he, how do you teach Jesus anything? He observed some things that made his heart real. And he proclaimed the good news. He focused on the main point of what he was talking about. And he cared for and ministered to the very real needs of the people. The next thing that we find about the teacher is that his motivation was compassion. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
He could see that as he went to the different towns, the villages, the synagogue. As he saw the needs that the people had, he saw that the people were helpless. They were deceived by the things of the world. And he knew very much that they needed a shepherd. And that brings him to the point where we realize that Jesus is expressing a real understanding of the harvest. The harvest is the people who need to know Jesus as Savior and God the Father. Now the harvest is a little bit tricky. And it's somewhat hard because living here in Hong Kong, we don't get to see a lot of harvesting going on. There's not much harvesting with all the concrete and the towers and the buildings. The place that I lived in America, our house was surrounded by fields and we could see the harvest. They needed to have someone that knew when to harvest. They brought in the big machinery and it would measure the, the, the percentage of moisture in the crop to know when it was the exact time to harvest. Knowing when to harvest is the key for farming. You get it too early and it doesn't taste right. You get it too late and it spoils. And Jesus had a real insight into the people that he saw and he said the harvest is ready it's time it's time to graduate some more workers into the harvest field because the harvest is ready and the next thing that we find is that Jesus graduates disciples into that harvest field He realizes that school is not something forever. You're learning the things in school for a reason. So that you can get out and be involved in the harvest. And so this, I believe, is the summary that Matthew puts in what's going on in the chapters before and the chapter after. And what we find is Jesus is using a technique that is really kind of common. I'm sure that those of you who have been in any kind of training seminars, you have probably heard something like this before. The tell, show, do, evaluate, and do again. It's a common learning practice. And something that I just realized this morning as I was reading my notes through again, for those of you who are teachers, do you see the pattern of what goes on here? People learn in different ways. There's the auditory, the visual, the active learner, the reflective learner, and the repetitive learner. Visual learners are first. I mean, auditory learners are first, then the visual learner, then the active learner then the reflective learner, then the repetition that helps us learn it again. But you've probably seen these kind of methods before. And we can see how Jesus used these in the chapters before and the chapters after. So let me just go through this with you for a little bit. Jesus is trying to raise up a group of followers, harvesters, if you will, disciples who will carry on the work of the kingdom. Now who did Jesus pick to be His followers and His disciples? For the most part, He picked common everyday laborers. Fishermen. 
common workers. And he had to transform their mind. Romans 12, chapter, or Romans 12, 1 and 2. He had to renew their minds so that they're thinking God's way. How did he do that? Does anybody know what's in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7? The, the Beatitudes started off in chapter 5. And after that, we go into a three-chapter sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is reorienting His followers to be thinking God's way. So that they can understand the kingdom of heaven. He tells them for three chapters. He talks to them. Reorients them. The Sermon on the Mount is really given to His close followers with hundreds or perhaps thousands of people listening in. So Jesus is telling them. Now, if you can scroll back through your Bible, or page back, however you want to do that, look at chapter 8 and chapter 9. He tells them for three chapters, and He shows them for two chapters. What's going on in chapter 8 and chapter 9? Count them up. He's doing miracles of healing, driving out demons. There are ten instances of some kind of miraculous event here in less than two chapters. So he's showing them how they will do ministry in the future. Ten miracles in two chapters, uh, ten healing miracles in two chapters, and just to throw in a little bit extra, he stops a storm. And so he's showing his disciples what it means to be in ministry in the kingdom of heaven. And that brings us to this point at the end of chapter 9, moving into chapter 10. And what's going on here is he is commissioning his disciples. You'll see just a few verses down into chapter 10, he lists all 10 of the, of the, of the 12 disciples. And then he commissions them and says, Go out. I give you power. I give you authority. Be involved in ministry. It's not just something that you listen to or watch me do. You go do it. Tell. Show. Do. And what happens in here? We don't have a full record of everything, but we have the disciples coming back in Mark 17, 19, and they, they, they evaluate. They said, why couldn't we drive out this demon? Or another place, they asked Jesus, what does this parable mean? And so they're coming back and, and, and re-discussing what's going on. Why did things work well? Why did they not work well? And then we have the do again. Because we don't just do it and then go write books about it. We get involved in ministry again. What we have in chapter 10 is Jesus sends out the twelve. He sends out the twelve disciples. In just two more chapters, Jesus is going to send out the seventy-two. The seventy-two is twelve plus sixty. 
because the twelve go out again. This time, each of them with five more in tow. And they're out there doing it again. Do you see the, pro- the, the process here? Jesus is working with his disciples to take them from common fishermen to worldwide evangelists. It's amazing the work that he did. And what this does for me is it challenges me to say, where am I? And you're going to be at different places in different parts of your life and in different areas of your life. But where are you in that list? Are there things that you're still hearing about? Are there things that you're trying to learn some more skills for? Are there things where you're watching someone else? Are you ready to take the steps to be involved in doing? Can you reflect on that and evaluate what God's done? And can you do again? Where is God working in your life? Some discipleship material that we um, have been using here at AIC has 12 different areas. 12 connection points, talking about the Word of God, talking about prayer, talking about evangelism, talking about having have, how to have victory in your life, how to have assurance in your life. 12 different areas. Are there areas that you need to work on? Are there areas that you need to improve? Take the opportunities you can to move on. And the second part of this is, are you taking somebody with you? You see, the disciples, they started out as 12. The next time they go out, they take a few people with them. And the 72 go out. And so this is just a wonderful process where God wants us to move on and be continuously going and being challenged by Him for what He wants to have happening within us and as we move out and are involved in ministry. Tell, show, do, evaluate, and do again. Now, I just want to connect a few things because we've talked about things uh, at AIC, and I just want to show you how these things come together. About a year ago, we were talking about four different stages of discipleship, and we used chairs as a model. The first stage is where you're curious about God but haven't made the commitment yet to follow Jesus as Savior. You move to... to Chair two, at the point that you receive Christ and you're ready to follow Him. Chair three is when we get involved in ministry. We're learning skills and we're, being in, we're getting involved in ministry, getting involved in the harvest. And chair four is when we become leadership and we start taking other people with us. We're passing it on to the next generation of people. Where I believe the disciples are right now, is transitioning from chair 2 to chair 3. They came and saw who Jesus was in chair 1. They were curious as to who He was. Then they started following Him, learning of His teaching, watching Jesus do ministry, and now Jesus is commissioning them to transition and move on to chair 3 where you're doing it. So if you remember those things um, from the past, that's a little bit of a link or how they fit together. So now I want to just look at this a little bit, maybe in a very practical way. And 
I need to ask the question. The harvest is plentiful. Whose harvest is it? Whose harvest is it? It says it there in Scripture. Whose harvest is it? It's God's harvest. It's the Master's harvest. We are the workers in the field. He is the one that's doing the harvest. And I need to tell myself sometimes that I just I need to wait and work with the work with the owner or the master of the field. But I look at the needs and I see the needs of the world. Somebody who's done the counting, I don't I don't know who did, who does this, but they tell me that there's something like 7 billion people on this planet. The likelihood of any one of us reaching all 7 billion is pretty small. You won't do it. Even if you could reach three and a half billion, you'd only get half. So how do you prioritize? How do you decide who am I going to minister to? The need is so big. You can just sit down and wait. Or we can get involved and decide where we work. One of the things that helps me decide is the idea of the concentric circles from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And I, it's awfully low here, but it's the verse that's been up front here for almost two years. Acts 1.8 talks about um, uh, being Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. It starts at the center of the circle and works out till it gets increasingly bigger. Jesus tells his followers to work from the small to the big, but don't ignore any. So I thought about that, and basically what this is telling me is that there are some places where I have a primary responsibility. And there's other places where I have a shared responsibility. There are some people in the world that fit within my small circle, and I have a primary responsibility of ministering to them. And there's other places where that circle expands. We're going to talk about that for just a little bit. I want to talk about primary responsibility. Centric circle of where you have a primary responsibility. Where do I have a responsibility to work as a harvester in God's field? There's not a question of do I have a responsibility, it's where do I have a responsibility? And I think that we have a primary responsibility because sometimes we have a unique relationship with someone. Or we're in proximity to them. We have a closeness to them. And this could be someone who either does not know Christ or needs to grow as a disciple of Christ. If you are the only Christian that someone else knows, you have responsibility to share the good news with them. It could also be because of the proximity the closeness, the relationship that we have to them. Of the 7 billion people on this earth, there is only one person that I call my wife. <laughs> Can I get an amen? 
There's a unique and special relationship that we have there. Do you see the responsibility to family? We have two children. We're the only people that they call mom and dad. And I praise the Lord that they both love Jesus. But some of these relationships that you have, you may be the only person or the only person with a credible witness or testimony to share because they trust you, because they love you, because you know them in a way that no one else knows them. And so take the opportunity to share Jesus with them. As Jesus went out visiting the towns and the villages, He was sure to share the gospel with them. And I'm sure some other things too. A couple of places in Scripture where I see this going on, where you have a primary responsibility, is in Ephesians 6.4. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesians, talking about families and, and parents' responsibility towards children, and he says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That needs to be a responsibility that we have towards family members. Someone else that I see is in in, uh, Luke chapter 10. We have the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan's walking down the road. He has no idea that he's going to be involved in ministry. And there's this man who just got robbed and left for dead on the road. And the Samaritan decided he couldn't pass by like everyone else. He had to stop and minister. And God may put you in some of those situations where you get a minister just because you're there. God puts you there. It's no accident. God puts you where He wants you to be. And then I look at the shared responsibility. Where do I have shared responsibility? Because there are people who need to know Christ or grow as His disciple, and they have other Christian friends. So think about that. Does someone have other Christian friends? Do they have other people that know Christ? You can work together. Now, how does this work? You may already know that this person has another Christian friend. You can be in prayer. This other person can be in prayer. And together, you can minister to the needs of that person. But you can also do things like invite someone to your house that you know doesn't know Jesus yet. And invite another friend over that they might like to get to know. And you can team them up with opportunities to minister to Jesus. Here at AIC... We have a common understanding of knowing Jesus as Savior. And when a visitor comes in, we could make it our priority to interact with that visitor. Find out where that visitor is in their walk with the Lord. And you know what? It's okay if you don't put the chairs away to go and talk to somebody. We'll deal with the chairs some other way. We like that you help with the chairs, but you know... Make it your priority. As Jesus went through the towns, He was sure to share the Gospel. And in fact, I'm so excited because the two ladies that received Christ um, last Sunday, as I understand the story, it was a friend, or it was somebody that they met here that introduced them to Jesus. And so take those opportunities where you can share 
the responsibility. Share and pray. And notice that I have up there that they come to know Christ or they need to grow as a disciple in Him. We want to have that follow-up. We want to help people have victory and assurance in their life that they can know Jesus Christ. And the third part of the concentric circles that I see here is there are places that we're going to need to send missionaries. Because the people that live where we're sending them have little chance of hearing the gospel or maturing as a disciple from the people that already live in that area. There are parts of this world where people will not, in their normal course of life, come across someone who knows Jesus. From what I understand, if you take the broadest definition of Christianity, there are something like two billion people who have some contact with Christianity. Not fully sure of how that all works, but there's somewhere around 2 billion people, which is the largest religion in the world as far as population. And uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting. There's about another 2 or 2.5 billion people who live near someone who can tell them about Jesus. And the numbers as I have seen them end up with something like between 2 and 3 billion people who will not hear about Jesus as a normal course of their life unless someone goes to them. And that's why we, why we combine together with the shared responsibility of sending people to places where they can interact with other people who need to know about Jesus. And so, it's just amazing how this works. But we need to take seriously the start of that circle at the very core. Who is it that I have a responsibility to minister to? And how does that circle expand and go out? And so... I want to ask the question, are you ready to graduate? Are you ready to get out of this school? I tell you, when I was ready to get out of high school, I was, I was gone. I wasn't coming back. We do find people that don't want to graduate. Well, why would that be? Why wouldn't you want to graduate? It's kind of nice in some of the younger stages. I've, I've learned some things and had some of these deep theological questions in my mind. You know that our, two of our grandchildren came to China at the end of last year. They were three and one and a half. And they cried. I wondered, does an English cry sound like a Chinese cry? Can they communicate to each other as they cry? You know what it's like to be a child? There's this universal um, sign that children do if they need something. It works in any language. They need their diaper changed. They need fed. They're getting bored. They want something to do. They need a nap. 
You know what it is? They cry. And guess what? Somebody magically takes care of all their needs. At least that's the way a dad looks at it because mom takes care of the needs. No. You see what it's like as you're in some of the younger stages? It's nice. I like it. I get my bottle. I don't want a bottle. Not at my age. (laughs) But they get what they want. And it's nice being at the tell and show stage. In America, they have show and tell. They have that here. Children bring something in, talk about it. They show the object. They tell about it. Gets them up in front of the class. It's nice being there. What does Jesus do when he moves on to chapter 10? He says, okay guys, it's time to graduate. Let me tell you what it's going to be like after you graduate. Now chapter 10 goes on for 42 verses. I kind of thought I'd be pushing the clock to read all 42 verses. But the same passage is found also in Mark and Luke. And by the way, you can check all these, these references. They're in your bulletin. Um, we put the, the references in for reading along with, with this series. And so I chose to look at the Mark passage and want to see what it's like. I figured Mark could summarize it better than me. I didn't want to summarize 42 verses, so I'll let Mark do it for me. Jesus says... These are my instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, not even an extra shirt. They're going to travel light, aren't they? Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now in Matthew, like I said, he gives a lot more detail. Because there's work when you graduate. It's going to be hard. You know, one of the hardest jobs I can think of would be harvesting for a farmer. I had a unique experience when I lived in the state of Indiana. The state of Indiana, uh, I don't know how much you know about America, but you might have heard about the Indianapolis 500. There's a racetrack, and they go around the track. 500 miles. The rest of the state is a cornfield. <laughs> so the state of Indiana is a racetrack with a cornfield around it. And I was a youth pastor there. We were trying to take the kids on a, mission, on a, on a, on a trip. And so they decided, uh, we, we decided that we'd have a car wash. I don't know if you're familiar with what that is, but we found a store that would let us use their car park, one level car park. And we invited signs up and had cars come in. And one of the boys was just very lackadaisically washing one of the wheels. And one of the youth leaders came up to him and said, you're going to have to work a little harder. What kind of career do you think you're going to have? And he said, oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to be a farmer. I just get to drive around in a tractor all day. 
Farming is one of the hardest jobs that there possibly could be. I have farmer friends that it's not unusual to work 14, 15, 16 hours a day and then start all over again the next morning at 4.30 a.m. Harvesting is one of the hardest things we can do. So if you're ready to join in the harvest, be aware that it's hard work. Jesus says that it's hard work. He goes on with a few more verses, and he says, they went out and preached that people should repent. What did the disciples do? They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil. What did Jesus send them out to do? Preach the gospel, heal the sick. And that's exactly what they did. And so I want to invite you and say, are you ready to graduate? Are you ready to graduate? Jesus is saying, let's go to the next step. Let's go from just hearing about it and watching someone else do it to you doing it. And so my invitation is to say, join the harvest. In some way, join the harvest. You may need to find that place of ministry. It may be within your family. It may be somewhere near where you live. It may be through a corporate ministry that AIC has where we intentionally try to minister to one of the very core values that we have of children's ministry. If we don't minister to them, who will? It may be finding some other place of service. But I invite you to join the harvest. It's time for us to graduate. And so I want to leave it there. I want to just have prayer. And then we'll move on with the celebration of baptism and uh, what we have with that. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for sending Jesus to minister and teach us and allow us to be partners with him in the harvest and what he has. Lord, it's ripe. It's ready to go. And we look forward to what you have. Guide us as a church as we go through this time of pastoral transition and the changes that we have. And I thank you for the people that are getting involved in the harvest. May we continue that. May we continue to walk forward in what you have for us to do. Lord, I thank you too for these that are going to follow you in baptism. We want to celebrate with them. We want to rejoice with them in what you're doing. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.